You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm Brianna Heaney, your host. This week, we'll hear about education in the state, from the bus driver shortage to how a new West Virginia law is helping child literacy. We'll hear from health officials in the state and learn how and where to get vaccines. And we'll visit the Canova Pumpkin House as it gets ready for its five-night Halloween celebration. Let's jump in with a few short news stories. Attorneys are asking a judge to sanction the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources because it did not keep emails and other electronically stored documents being sought in a class action lawsuit. Emily Rice has more. In a class action lawsuit against the DHHR, attorneys with Schaefer & Schaefer Law Firm, A Better Childhood, and Disability Rights West Virginia filed a motion on Wednesday morning asking U.S. District Judge Joseph Goodwin to grant the motion for sanctions. The motion accuses the DHHR of deliberate indifference to due process claims brought by the attorneys representing 12 foster children against DHHR. Governor Jim Justice's Chief of Staff Brian Abraham said the emails were deleted because of the Office of Technology's protocol to delete the emails of employees who'd left their positions with the state. This administration was unaware that there was a policy in place at the Office of Technology to delete the emails of employees who left employment with the state of West Virginia. So there's no basis whatsoever for any allegation that emails were intentionally deleted. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. A West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources supervisor indicted in a federal grant investigation appeared in court Thursday. Carolina McGregor has more. Timothy Priddy, former director of the DHHR's Center for Threat Preparedness, was suspended after he allegedly lied about the verification process for millions of dollars worth of COVID-19 test kits. Priddy appeared in the U.S. District Court Thursday in Charleston after being indicted on four criminal counts. According to the indictment, an out-of-state vendor submitted $45 million in invoices for 500,000 COVID test kits. However, the vendor only reported 50,000 test results between October 2020 and March 2022. Priddy is accused of lying about the audit process during an interview with an FBI agent and a U.S. postal inspector and later making false statements before a grand jury. He entered a not guilty plea and was freed on bond. His trial date is set for December 19th. Reporting for West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. President Gordon Gee hinted at more cuts for West Virginia University in his State of the University address on Monday. Chris Schultz has more. Gee opened his remarks by acknowledging the impacts of the academic transformation process that has cut dozens of programs and close to 150 faculty positions. He highlighted several of the university's successes, including a National Astronomy Award, before returning to the issue of the university's budget deficit. WVU is facing a $45 million budget shortfall, and Guy says the 2024 budget was designed to reduce expenses by around $21 million. So the academic program review process, we are estimating the university will yield around $17.3 million in savings by fiscal year 27. However, the majority of savings will be realized in fiscal year 25. Reviews of WVU's Beckley and Kaiser campuses, as well as WVU Extension, are slated for January 2024. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. On Friday, 
West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey continued to defend the state's law, barring transgender athletes from participating on sports teams that align with their gender identity. Emily Rice has more. In 2021, the ACLU and other parties challenged West Virginia's law prohibiting transgender girls and women in the state from competing on sports teams from middle school through college. Since then, Morrissey's office has fought to dismiss the lawsuit. I think we're absolutely correct on the law. The district court got it right. And to us, it's a matter of basic fairness and common sense that biological males should not be playing sports with women. In August of this year, the Fourth Circuit reinstated a preliminary injunction suspending the law as the case works its way through the courts. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Students in some southern West Virginia counties will soon have access to online academic help. Chris Schultz has more. Students and their families from Mercer, Monroe, Summers, Raleigh, and Wyoming counties currently enrolled in 7th or 8th grade can now access 24-7 academic support via Tutor.com. Kristen O'Sullivan is the director of Gear Up Southern West Virginia, a national department of education program to help young people in economically challenged areas to reach post-secondary education through partnerships like Tutor.com. As a native of Southern West Virginia, she said she would have loved this kind of support when raising her own children. And I can just remember those nights when they were struggling where I didn't feel I had the capacity to be able to help them much. Well, parents will no longer have to worry about that. Um, They will have those experts right there at all times. O'Sullivan notes that students younger than 13 must submit a signed permission slip before accessing the online resources. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top featured stories from the past week. A continuing West Virginia school bus driver shortage has bus routes being canceled daily and parents scrambling to get their children to school. Randy Yohe spoke with three student transportation directors about the challenges they face and anything that might increase this struggling workforce. Eric Kiesecker is executive director of the Berkeley County Schools Transportation Department. He has 240 bus routes that need to be covered twice a day, every school day. He's canceling at least three routes daily. Each route averages 50 to 55 students. He says it's the worst he's seen in his 17 years on the job. That means we have 15 vacancies uh, that you know we start off with every day. And, and then uh, we, we have a few substitutes, but most of those are retired bus drivers that only want to work a couple of days a week. Um, so um, basically we have zero substitutes uh, to put on any absences. Before the school year started, Raleigh County Schools Transportation Director Greg Bakesian had unusually low numbers in summer bus driver classes, had several drivers that left for other opportunities, and the usual retired bus drivers that filled in the gaps were not coming forward. We had some folks with some family emergencies, and we had some folks with some medical issues. So uh, it kind of, it was like a perfect storm there right as school was starting. And we have about 120 bus routes each day. Um, so with with not having a, a full list of full-time drivers, you know, we have to, and we don't have a full list of subs either. And so there's about five or six runs every day that uh, 
that we're not going to be able to cover, and that's if that's if everybody works. Keysecker says Berkeley County parents on canceled bus routes have stepped up. A lot of parents have developed a, a carpooling system uh, to get the kids to school. However, if um, there isn't a ride for that child, then the child stays home and they get their uh, work for the day off of uh, our website. Bakesian says other Raleigh County bus drivers try to pick up second routes, but that creates confusion. Um, especially the younger grades, you know, a lot of a lot of the elementary kids, they, they know they ride a certain bus number. And if another bus picks them up, it, it creates some confusion for the, for the child, uh, which, you know, in turn creates confusion for the parents. David Baber is Transportation Director for the West Virginia Department of Education. He says statewide there's about 4,000 buses, about 29,000 drivers. But he liked what he heard about the Berkeley County parent carpools. That's great. I mean, if they are, uh, at least we're getting the students, to getting the kids to school that way. But I don't know what we could do at the state level to, to do anything about that. All agree that what would help recruit and retain is a pay raise. School bus drivers with a CDL license make about $25,000 a year to start. Keysecker says they can make triple that in the private sector. There are so many manufacturers and companies that have come in uh, to this area, not just Berkeley County, but you know across the line in, in Maryland and Virginia, that we're all fighting for the same labor pool. Baber says pay raises are needed to be competitive, but the challenge goes beyond that. Uh, we are losing or have lost people to other industry. Uh, another thing you have to keep in mind, too, is we, we, we don't have people beating the door down to get in here anymore like we used to. Uh, it's, just a different, um, it's just a different time that we're in. Baber says a critical shortage of school bus mechanics continues as well. They're going to higher paid jobs. Um, uh, some mechanics, most counties or some counties want their mechanics to also drive school bus and you know some don't want to do that and um, so we, we have them leaving left and right as well. Bakishan does say in Raleigh County some things are looking up. We do have two, uh, two classes going on right now and we will see uh, five or six folks come out of those classes uh, very soon and, and become bus drivers for us. So I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, things are looking, looking up. Uh, we are, our cancellations each week are trending downward. So, um, you know, there is some, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. And I think we're, we're working through it the best we can. I think we're fortunate in Raleigh County. Uh, we do have a big population and, uh, you know, folks, folks come in all the time and interview, uh, and really just want to help out. So, you know, um, it's, It'll work itself out, I think. Uh, like I said, I don't know what the answer is, but we're gonna we're gonna keep recruiting and keep training and uh, you know, see if we can overcome this problem. <laughs> For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yoey in Charleston. Reading is a fundamental life skill. Studies show that if children aren't up to speed by third grade, it can indicate future difficulties in and out of the classroom. As Chris Schultz reports, a new law is now in effect across West Virginia to implement more effective reading education. Then today, Ms. Vicki's gonna be calling a group. 
and I'm going to be calling a group back to our tables. Everybody got that? Yeah. yeah. All right. At the Brewston School in Preston County, Robin Hagedorn's first graders are preparing to break up into small groups for the day's reading lesson. It takes me a whole month to train my kids in their stations so that they know what to do. This weekend I was nervous and I worried and I, I wanted to make sure I had all of my ducks in a row for, for Miss Vicki and myself. Miss Vicki is Vicki Neiman, a paraprofessional that joined Hagedorn's classroom this year. Hagedorn says she is so grateful to have the extra help because individualized learning in small, student-led groups by six-year-olds is made much easier by having another adult in the classroom. And Neiman agrees. Having that second person, you can just jump in if you see somebody getting off task or needing a page turned, and you don't have to disrupt the whole entire class. I feel like it's going smoothly. Neiman is in a first-grade classroom this fall thanks to House Bill 3035, also known as the Third Grade Success Act. Passed earlier this year by the state legislature, the law aims to address low reading and math test scores across the state. Jonah Atkins is the director of the Office of Pre-K through 12 Academic Support for the West Virginia Department of Education. I think the legislature understood the need to close the achievement gap as it pertains to literacy in our state. They saw just the need in general to do something uh, to address our deficits. There was a sense of urgency there. The most recent results of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, published in October of 2022, show that West Virginia students had some of the lowest reading scores in the nation and were at least 10 percent behind the national average. Atkins says bringing extra help into the classroom will be one of the most visible changes of many implemented by the law. But he points out the name Third Grade Success Act only hints at the scope of the undertaking. The work to ensure that students are reading on level by the third grade starts much earlier. That would actually be kindergarten through third grade that are actually getting you know, this instruction. ECATs, early classroom childhood assistant teachers, this year they were introduced in first grade, next year they will be introduced in second grade, and the year following they will be introduced in third grade. The state's educators aim to achieve results through several changes, including regularly screening and assessing students' development, continuous contact with parents and guardians, and focusing instruction on what is called the science of reading. Mindy Allinger is Associate Professor of Literacy Instruction for pre-service and in-service teachers at Marshall University. She says phonemic awareness is the foundation of how children learn to read. Phonemes are the distinct sounds that make up a word. We're segmenting a word by sounds like cat, k, at, or manipulating if I take off the k, but add a m, then that's math. So that's manipulating. All of those are features of phonemic awareness. West Virginia is following the lead of other states like Mississippi and Tennessee that focus on evidence-based fundamentals like phonemic awareness to produce repeatable results across classrooms. Before, most counties tended to choose one curriculum and stick to it. Now, teachers are welcome to draw from multiple sources as long as what they implement is aligned with the science of reading. Allinger likens it to medical care. What worked in the past shouldn't trump cutting-edge research research, meaning it's numbers. We're not looking at anecdotal where I say, oh, well, my little one learned to read like this, or I like to teach like this, or this is how I learned. Instead, this is all based on research. And so it's uh, quantitative, meaning we have numbers. Uh, it's reliable. Uh, and reliable just means that it is, uh, can the results be reproduced no matter who's testing, no matter what conditions? And it's valid, meaning that it's really testing what it says it's going to test. 
Allinger and other educational trainers say the science of reading already underpinned most literacy instruction nationwide, so teaching programs have not had to change their curriculums. Before this year, the level of awareness of the science of reading and its application have varied greatly from county to county in West Virginia. That led the Department of Education to launch a teacher training initiative. As you can only imagine, we're on all different levels across the state. We have some um, people that they're just learning about the science of reading. They've never heard it before. But then we also have some really great high flyers that have been using it in their classroom and um, that we are highlighting as model examples in the classroom. Kelly Griffith is a coordinator of the Office of Pre-K through 12 Academic Support for the West Virginia Department of Education. She says the state office has been hosting trainings all summer and into the fall, as well as creating a library of resources online. We've been doing regional rollouts for county level. We're taking the county level admin, the LEAs of each county, and we are training them on all of the resources that we have developed to date. So they have everything that we've developed for educators. Our plan is to build the capacity in the districts and support them because they know best the needs of their individual counties and where their teachers are. One of the next steps for the implementation of the Third Grade Success Act will be a focus on numeracy and math education, another subject where state test scores have lagged after the COVID-19 pandemic. But in these early months, the focus for Allinger and other educators remains on reading. The inspiration and the hope that if I can make sure that all of my little first graders leave Knowing how to read, what other gift could you give to someone's life than teaching them how to read? For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Vaccine confusion and access are at the forefront of health experts' minds as we arrive in respiratory illness season. Emily Rice has more. With a new COVID-19 vaccine, the annual flu shot, and new recommendations alongside a new RSV vaccine, it is no wonder some are left confused about which shot to get, when, and where. Dr. Stephen Eschenauer is the Kanawha Charleston Health Officer. He said there have been recent spikes in COVID-19 hospitalization cases in West Virginia. Thankfully, this past week, we actually had a little bit of a dip. Hopefully, that is that we have peaked, but it's hard to say. We had two weeks where it was the same high level. Eschenauer said most health insurers cover the COVID-19 vaccine, but there are free doses of the new vaccine provided by the state for those without insurance. But uh, thankfully, we do indeed have the new COVID vaccine here at the Canal Charleston Health Department. We have uh, all three, Moderna, Pfizer, and Novavax. We have them for both insureds, and we have doses for those who are uninsured as well that are free. In addition, PEIA, the state's health insurance provider, considers the COVID-19 vaccine a medical benefit and therefore covers vaccination at pharmacies and health care providers, according to Samantha Knapp, Director of Communications at the West Virginia Department of Administration. Eschenauer said the rollout of the new COVID-19 vaccine has been slower when compared with previous boosters and vaccines, but that most facilities have them in stock. But I would call your local pharmacy and see if they do have the vaccine and or health department to see if they have the vaccine 
many of which do have the vaccine at this point. Another fall respiratory illness, respiratory cyclical virus, or RSV, has medication and vaccines for people to contend with this year. After consulting with a physician, the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, recommends that adults 60 years of age and older may receive a single dose of the RSV vaccine. Pregnant people are also eligible for the RSV vaccine, depending on how far along in their pregnancy they are. One of the things that has been a little bit concerned is where it's a new vaccine, a number of the insurers are just, are just now getting on board as to the insurance coverage for that vaccination. And we some do and some don't. So before I would seek to get the vaccine, I would contact your insurer. This year, the FDA approved the monoclonal antibody treatment Bayfortis for children, which acts like a vaccine by protecting against severe disease for a single RSV season. For children, I would have uh, all parents consult with their pediatrician on getting the RSV vaccine and or antibodies for their child. Eschenauer said the healthcare system is not seeing the number of flu cases it did at this point last year and credits early vaccination. Thankfully, we're not seeing that yet. We've been very, uh, very positive about the public uh, demand to get the flu shot and have had robust uh, flu vaccination numbers early this year. And that may have been because flu hit early last year. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachian Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. I visited the Canova Pumpkin House, where thousands of visitors from all over the region come to see more than 3,000 pumpkins aglow for the Halloween weekend. Almost all of the 3,000 plus pumpkins at the Canova Pumpkin House start at Jason Ecker's farm. He began farming after quitting his public service job of 20 years to follow his dream of being a substance farmer. After having success producing and selling sweet corn, Ecker's longtime friend and Canova Pumpkin House owner, Rick Griffith, asked him if he would grow him some pumpkins. So we started growing and we grew him 500 pumpkins one year and we grew him 1,000. Next thing you know, we're at 1,500 and now we're at 3,000, so. That's Eckers. He is also the district supervisor of the Guyan Conservation District in Southern West Virginia. Its Agricultural Conservation Board advocates for sustainable farming practices. He says growing pumpkins is complicated work. The first couple years I struggled because pumpkins is it's a little bit different than anything else. There's so many diseases and so many things that you have to fight. So you have to spend a lot of money to be able to raise them. It's almost like uh, an antibiotic. You have to treat them with different things. Every six days you have to spray all summer. Once the pumpkins are ready, they harvest them and bring them over to Griffith's house starting in early October. Over the course of the month, Griffith will start sketching cutout patterns on the pumpkins. Sometimes he will freehand or sometimes he will choose a design from one of the 18 binders he keeps in one of his sheds that are solely dedicated to the event. My wife, she's got a doctorate in psychology and so it's kind of hard to dispute her diagnosis that I have an obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, I have 18 books of drawings and right now I can't find the dancing cats 
because I can't remember how I drew them. Exactly one week from the festival, Griffith starts to open the pumpkins for carving. He has to wait until the last possible moment to start opening the pumpkins so that they don't go bad. The first few steps are for cleaning out the pulp from the pumpkin. Pulp removal is done with the help of volunteer children. The neatest thing about this is the volunteers. We had a school here earlier, Lawrence County, Kentucky's actual beta club, and those kids did probably 200 pumpkins at least. Or with the help of adults and a contraption specially made for Griffiths Canova Pumpkin House by Martha Stewart. Martha, Martha Stewart sent these, they call them the Martha Nader. It's pretty cool. Seriously. Does a really good job. Let me show you, let me show you how quick. The Marthinator is a giant sturdy metal whisk with an extra long arm that attaches to a drill bit. She made it for him after inviting him on her show. Once the pumpkins are cleaned out, they are soaked in a bleach bath for a couple of hours. Those small little bits of pumpkin will mold and rot and literally infect the pumpkin from within and from without. And so we have a little vat here of water that we add bleach to, uh, which we hope retards some of the mold growth, and it keeps it clean before it's placed on the shelf. And so it may buy us a day or two, because these are real pumpkins, and global warming's not our friend. So if it's too warm, uh, they will rot very quickly. The heat speeds up the decay of the pumpkins, and with the last seven years being the hottest years on record, this means the pumpkins have a higher chance of decaying. After the pumpkins are done with their bleach bath, they are sent to either the amateur shed, where adults use jigsaws to carve more basic drawings into the pumpkin, or from the artist shed where the tools are carefully laid out on the table. Standing lights shine on the pumpkins placed carefully on their pedestals. The carvers peer through magnifying glasses to carve out intricate details in the pumpkin. The room is filled with a silent concentration. After the pumpkins are carved, they will go to their spot in Griffith's master plan. They will either line the house, go on the roof, be a part of the cat choir, be a part of a historical quiz, or be part of a rock band that will be playing country roads. The pumpkins are lit with bulbs connected by nearly a mile of lighting and extension cords. Yeah, I love the I, I love the country roads choir. I do. That's Herbie. He has been volunteering at the Canova Pumpkin House for ten years. When it all comes together, the large house glows a bright orange. From a distance, it looks like a light, bright design of a large house with only orange and yellow pegs. Close up, it's thousands of little pieces of art, ranging from an intricate design of David Letterman to the classic jack-o'-lantern. Never know what you're going to expect, and the, when the display is finished, it, it looks beautiful, like a dream come true. Spooky and dark, beautiful. Griffith says the most beautiful thing to him about the pumpkin house is all the volunteer hours that go into making it happen. He says that the finished result is a symbol for the greatest thing about his home state, the people. And we have to do it with love and hard work and cooperation. And we have wonderful people. And so I look at this silly celebration every year 
as something that's sort of a symbol to me of that, in that people come together. It's really an Appalachian thing. People see a need and they jump in and help us, and that's wonderful. The Pumpkin House opens for viewing on Friday and runs until Halloween night. Admission is completely free. It is located in Canova, right outside of Huntington. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Canova. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back next week. As always, you can see the stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm your host, Brianna Heaney.